Hello and welcome to Keanu Club, like a cool breeze over the mountains. This is episode 29, Much Ado About Nothing, from 1993. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. With us, our resident Keanu historian, Tobin Addington. Hello, Tobin. Hey, guys. Are you trying to tell everybody that I'm old? Is that what's going on here? Well, I was going to say because you did Dangerous Liaisons, but we've done a lot of things lately that are sort of historic, and you really haven't been on those. You're on... Well, I guess my own private Idaho. Okay, let me let me rephrase <laughs> that. Our resident Keanu Shakespeare historian, ah, uh, yes, Tobin Addington, because that's yeah, two no. in a row that you've been on, either loosely or directly based on Shakespeare stuff. That's right. That's right. I will. I will take that. I'll take that. He is the reigning champion of period pieces so far, <laughs> undefeated and still undefeated, Tobin Addington. That's right. That's right. So this movie, I had never seen this version. I saw the Joss Whedon version. Did you guys see the Joss Whedon version from a couple years ago? I have not. Neither have I. It's really good. Like, it's a modern adaptation. He shot it, I think, over a weekend in his own house in Los Angeles and just, like, had a bunch of his actor friends, like Nathan Fillion's in it. The guy who plays Simon Tam, Sean Mayer, I think is his name, plays the Keanu part, the Don John part. And it's really good, and I liked it because it's sort of a different take on Shakespeare, which... It feels like at this point, everybody's done Shakespeare, and so I like seeing different takes on it. Here, it's sort of like what you kind of would expect if you have to read this play in high school, for instance. Like, it's like a old-timey, everybody's like in very flowery robes, with very flowery speech, and it's it's not bad. It's just like, I don't know that I like this as much as I like the Joss Whedon one. Obviously, as I said, I have not seen the Joss Whedon one, so I, I can't speak to that. You're right, this is a much more in some ways traditional take or straight take on the on the play uh, a confession time again this, this should just be Ke- keanu confessions um so this is another of my desert island movies this made my seven favorite films uh, in, in fact if there was only one movie i could take to a desert island it might be this one this film makes me so happy i cannot begin to describe it this and, and Dangerous Liaisons were my two sort of like formative high school romance movies. <laughs> did you, when you were in high school, did you put together that they were both Keanu movies? Like, no, did that... no. In fact, no, I, did, I didn't. I didn't. You know, when you guys had said you were going to do uh, Keanu Club, that, that's when I realized that that was the, the link between them. Oh, um, man. I can, just like with Dangerous Liaisons, I can quote this movie. When a scene starts, I can I can start to quote it. I can even do the inflections. I drove to my local bookstore the day that there was a joint biography of Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson that came out that was published about um, a month before they divorced. And I drove to the store the day it came out. I just got my driver's license and I drove to get the book to bring it home and to read it that night. I mean, I was obsessed they were married during this time, right? They were married. Yes, yes, they were married, and and had been, you know, for years before. They'd done other movies before Dead Again and, and, and other things uh, prior to this film. And that's not necessarily why I have not watched the Joss Whedon movie. But there's this is a movie that in no way can I be objective about because I just I just love this movie so much. It makes me so happy. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said this movie makes you happy because I was so happy watching this movie too like I was laughing out loud I was clapping I was just like smiling like crazy and this is one of the Shakespeare plays I wasn't very familiar with I don't recall ever studying this one in high school I remember my high school English teacher too was like really pushing Shakespeare on us at the time because 
Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet had just come out, ah, and yeah. Kenneth Brenna's Hamlet had just come out, and I remember getting extra credit for seeing them in theaters and <laughs> sort of sparking my interest in more Shakespeare. Uh, but this one I never got around to, and I like the period piece of this. I think it works well, but I'm kind of curious now to see the Joss Whedon version because I've seen Shakespeare adapted into modern day before and I think it works pretty well from mm-hmm. time to time. And mm-hmm. this is such like a fun, good play. Like I could see it being adapted well to modern times and over and over again. There's just not a lot of difficulty going on here. You know, it's, it's just a romp. Well, I mean, the movie is just basically a bunch of drunk assholes messing around with each other and, like, getting into trouble. Like, that's just, like, the story is great. I I don't want to make it seem like I didn't like this movie. I I just like the different take, because this feels like what you would expect when you see a Shakespeare adaptation. I guess that's kind of what Kenneth Branagh is known for, right? Like, that's, like, sort of in his wheelhouse, like, with this and Hamlet and stuff, right? You know, he's going to do these big sort of things that Shakespeare would be proud of. Like, I don't know how Shakespeare would... You know, spoiler alert, like, if he was just one guy and not, like, a team of writers, man. Like, wow, I don't know how he would how he would think about, like, something, you know, like Joss Whedon adapting it to modern day. But, like, this sort of feels like the vision he had. This is really well done. And, like, there's one moment in this movie that I loved more than anything else in the Joss Whedon one, which is, like, title card when all of the heroes or all the yes. guys we're going to follow are riding over yes. that hill on yes. horseback. Yes. And I, like you know, arms in the air in triumph, like, this is amazing, like, this is why I watched this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's totally true. You know, I think the, the thing that would probably shock Shakespeare the most about this version is the fact that women were playing the women in this movie. True. Uh, so, you know, people have been, have been you know, taking poetic license with Shakespeare for a long time, and it's true, it does hold up in all kinds of uh, circumstances. Kenneth Branagh's first film, uh, Henry V, is another very traditional take. It's a period take on Henry V that tries to be as as close as it can be to the faithful as it can be to the period. Uh, and it's a remarkable movie. If you haven't seen that, it's it's they still they they cited um, in the most recent season of Game of Thrones the the big battle scene. They borrowed a lot from his battle scenes because they didn't have very much money, and they were able to do a lot with very little. And it's it's something that they they've used to great effect since then. And since that film and Much Ado, he's made other more modern. He did a, he did a 1940s musical version of Love's Labor's Lost with Cole Porter and uh, Gershwin music with Natasha McElhenho and, and a bunch of people. He did a feudal Japan version of As You Like It. Oh, he's like a Kurosawa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. He's, he's taking it different places. There, there was a long time he wanted to do a Macbeth set in high finance, sort of like Wall Street meets Macbeth, which I think would be awesome. Didn't Ethan Hawke do a Hamlet or yeah. something that was in high finance society? Yep. Yeah. yeah, totally. So anyway, I don't mean to go off on the history of Kenneth Branagh. I could, I could, but I won't. But I, I agree that slow motion fist in the air as the men ride, like it's so cheesy. It just announces to you like this movie is going to make you feel great. And if you're up for that ride, it's going to take care of you. And if you're not, <laughs> you better turn it off now. And I think that there's a, there's a sense in which we forget or don't understand how hard it is to maintain that tone, how hard it is to make something that is as happy making as this is to make a, to make a romp. And that, and yet that said, this movie gets does get dark in some places. Maybe not as dark as it should, or or maybe or maybe you know maybe too dark, depending on your on your point of view. But in general, we often underestimate how hard it is to make things feel light, and overestimate how hard it is to make things feel dark. Yeah, you're totally right about the tone of this. Like, It is joyful and consistent. It's a feat indeed because 
Like, I didn't expect it to be so funny. And, you know, <laughs> not used to Kenneth Brenner directing a lot of comedy. So I was kind of worried it would teeter over the edge and almost fall into parody to a degree. But he treads that line so well in this movie with this material. He's great in it, too. And you just get the sense that he's got such an understanding of the material and what he wants. And everybody, for that matter, seems to really know this well and be there because they want to be. And I feel like everybody just comes across really well. Speaking of the women, no man playing women in this movie at all, and I think Beatrice, Emma Thompson's character, may be one of the strongest female characters we've seen mm-hmm. yet in Keanu Club, and, sure. and right off the bat, I am just enamored by her. <laughs> and, you know, even before the men come galloping into the little countryside, she's got me wondering where this is all going to go. The movie starts out very slow, and, like, she's just in a tree eating grapes, they're just, like, they're just sort of, like, talking, and then you kind of get lulled into this, like, I don't know if it's, like, an intentional false start, but it seems like it's, like, way slower, and then all of a sudden, everybody's naked, and then we have the horses riding (laughs) over the hill, and you're like, wait, what just happened? Like, I had to restart the movie, like, after the first minute, like, there's the, like, the opening text, not like a text crawl, but there's just, like, text on screen that I think is narrated by Emma Thompson, probably? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's as she's reading the poem, we're seeing the lines as she reads The Hey Nani Nani, which comes up a few more times, and we just go to them, and they're sort of, like, having a picnic, and it's, like, it's all, like, basically nothing's happening. I was like, oh, God, because in my head, I was just like, oh, I I like seeing actors I know, and you know, I know Emma Thompson, but I don't know really any of these other people. And then all of a sudden, the horses ride over the hill, and then all the women are like, oh no, we need to go get ready. And they just all go get naked. And it's just like, wait, what is going on in this movie? Like, this is like such an abrupt 180 that it's jarring and it does nothing but energize you. Like, I don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah, and what else is crazy about that is like, as the guys come into the villa or that little, what is that? Like, um, uh, like a chateau or something yeah, where they stay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but, yeah. As the as the guys come into the villa, like they jump off the horses and they strip down too, and everybody is just getting cleaned up before they meet each other. But I think what's going on before that is they're talking about how Denzel, the prince, is coming, and Kenneth Branagh is coming with, and Emma Thompson and Kenneth Branagh don't get along. So I think they're sort of going like, "All oh, these guys are coming. It's going to be a rough weekend. Like a bunch of crazy stuff sure is going to happen." And and sure enough, like it does end up happening. So yeah. <laughs> And it's just you're shot out of a cannon. As soon as the guys show up, like, the movie is off and running. And one of those guys on the horses is our man, the man of the hour, Keanu Reeves. I can't remember another movie that we've had so far, Mike, where he has facial hair. He looks very different. He looks older. He sort Mm. of looks kind of like a cartoony devil. I mean, he is the bad guy (laughs) in this movie. But, you know, the devil's sort of like that black goatee. You know, he's rocking a full beard, but he kind of looks like that cartoony villain like even without hearing him speak and one of the first things he says is basically I'm not going to talk very much it's like oh okay like (laughs) we can sort of not pay attention to him this movie I guess but even without hearing him speak you're like oh this guy is probably up to no good or he's like strikingly handsome and he's going to be the main guy so it's one extreme or the other like nobody who looks the way he looks is going to have an insignificant role in this movie Yeah, I think the only other time he had a beard was in I Love You to Death, where it wasn't even a full beard because he was like a heroin junkie, so much of it was just patchy, and he had a really crazy look going on in there. But as soon as he showed up, I was like, oh, wow, he's kind of striking and different in this all of a sudden. I was like, it is the beard. He just looks more mature, he looks older, he looks very confident, and I really do like his performance in this, and you're right, you get, like, immediately, he's the only one on his horse that isn't 
reveling. He is frowning. He's like, we're going to find out he's like an emo boy, right? He's like super <laughs> depressed. You I know? Wrote that down. Like, and he's got a little bit of a right to be. I mean, he is the bastard brother he's of not a, he's Denzel, a, I don't think right? he's a, Is he a bastard? They just call him a bastard. I don't he's, think he's actually a bastard. Can I read you his introduction from the script? Yes. Exterior road day. Introductory close-ups of all the writers. Don Pedro, this is the Denzel Washington character, is in the oh, center. Yeah. By the way, Denzel is in this movie. Yeah, by the way, the Denzel. Only... Who is amazing. He's so good in this movie. Okay, I, go I, ahead. I, okay, so, uh, so Don Pedro is in the center, riding in front, a natural commander. All muscles. Yes. To mm-hmm. his right, Claudio. This is the Robert Sean Leonard character. Very young, very beautiful, nervous. Then, to Don Pedro's left, his brother... Don John the Bastard. Sexy, dark, reserved. Sexy, dark, reserved. Well, I think he pulls it off. And (laughs) when they dismount and he's just standing there, everybody is happy and he's just like not. (laughs) One thing that I read that goes back to what Mike said about how he's just basically an emo boy was that apparently financing for this movie was very difficult to come by. And somebody, there's like a theory that's been posited that the reason that they were able to finance the movie is because very early on he has a shirtless scene. We just cut to him getting rubbed down with oil and this is when we find out how emo he is. Like He has all the feels. What the good year, my lord? Why are you thus out of measure sad? There is no measure in the occasion that breeds. Therefore the sadness is without limit. You should hear reason. And when I have heard it, but blessing brings it. I cannot hide what I am. I must be sad when I have cause and smile at no man's jests. Eat when I have stomach. Wait for no man's leisure. Sleep when I am drowsy and tend on no man's business. Laugh when I am merry. And claw no man in his humor. Yea, but you must not make full show of this till you may do so without controlment. You have of late stood out against your brother, and he hath taken you newly into his grace. But it is impossible you should take true root, but by the fair weather that you make yourself. I had rather be a canker in a hedge than a rose in his grace. In this, though I cannot be said to be a flattering, honest man, it must not be denied, but I am a plain-dealing villain. If I had my mouth, I would bite. If I had my liberty, I would do my liking. In the meantime, let me be that I am, and seek not to alter me. Everything he's saying is so I guess it's it's sort of Shakespearean in that way but like everything about him like he's confidently every emotion you can be he's like well if I was this I would be this if this happened I would be this and it's just like okay dude you don't have to go 100 all the time we can dial it back a little bit but he basically treats everything like it's the biggest deal in the world which I guess is really the only reason that like because he's that way really anything in this movie sort of happens like he gets the ball rolling yeah totally Kenneth Branagh in the introduction to the screenplay talks about him as a prototype for Iago from Othello as a character who is sort of engineering the plot in a way that sort of instigates a lot of the main action of the story and I think that it's he plays as 
is meant to play, I think, as both an inverse of his brother, the prince, and also an inverse of the Benedict character, who's the Kenneth Branagh character, who's very warm and very, very playful, right, in a lot of ways. And that's complete opposite to the Don John character. On a side note, the scene where he's getting the rub down in the script he's described as naked, lying on the slab naked, face down, getting a massage. So they did put pants on him. Uh, I don't know who who that was a sop to, if that was Keanu's doing or or someone else's, but um, it was, and maybe that's how they got the money. In the script, it said it was going to be a nude scene, and so some some money comes in for that. I don't really know. I thought his character was cool because he's very different than anyone else, right? Like, he's the only angry guy, and thus he stands out, and that scene where he basically talks the most he's going to talk for the entire movie, where he's getting his massage, and that's when he's getting up, and he's like, if I'm happy, I'll be happy, but I'm not going to pretend to be happy, like, you know, I'm generally just have a bad disposition, so I'm going to be that way, and everything. Like, that, I really, I really got into it. I was really like, wow, Keanu's I think Keanu's good in this. Like he's pulling, <laughs> he's pulling off the Shakespeare stuff. Like I just wasn't expecting it. And almost up until that point, it was riding on whether I was going to buy Keanu. Denzel is so casual, and Kenneth Branagh is just freaking jumps off the script. I felt like he was sitting next to me half the movie, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, like totally. just in my living room, you know. So he was kind of riding on Keanu for me. And to be honest, I think he pulls this off. I was like, yeah, whatever he's doing is working. Well, because we talked about in the Dangerous Liaisons app that he's sort of a little bit out of place there. And then we talked about for the Dracula episode that he's kind of the worst part of Dracula. And here, I feel like at the very beginning, when everybody arrives, they're all sort of in a little courtyard. We're going to be here a month. Like, it's going to be a month-long party. And, like, he has a few lines there. Let me bid you welcome, my lord. Being reconciled to the prince, your brother, I owe you all duty. I thank you. I am not of many words, but I thank you. I don't know if they shot that early or whatever, but I feel like that's the worst he is in this movie. Like, There's mm-hmm. a little bit of that surfer affectation that doesn't necessarily fit in, and then whatever happened, whether they shot on a different day or whatever, when they get to that scene, the quote-unquote nude scene, he's just like a completely different, like he's like into it, he's like ready to go. I guess maybe he learned how to recite Shakespeare. Like It's like a completely different actor almost from that outside scene where he's just sort of a little bit stilted and a little bit like, oh, I'm not going to talk very much. And then the rest of the movie, whether he's in that or, you know, running around behind the scenes doing nefarious things, it's a very different, completely different, much more enjoyable Keanu Reeves. I totally agree. I I think that that first scene that he's in, he's pretty wooden, which is often a critique of Keanu Reeves. And I think that people don't give him credit as much for the, the later performance in this movie you know that scene where he gets to the the quote-unquote nude scene um he gets to do something that is sort of particular to shakespeare in terms of film which is he gets to sort of tell us who he is that scene is just there for them to have a chance to talk about themselves and not necessarily be fully honest maybe or fully aware but in some ways to sort of give us a window into how they view themselves that kind of monologue there it's hard, right? Because you, you're not supposed to like the character, you know? He's like the least fun character to be around in a movie full of characters who are fun to be around, which is a sort of a thankless thing. But that scene, that's the, that is the scene for Don John. That is his biggest scene. You know, that's, that's the reason you do this movie if you're the actor playing Don John. If nothing else, I believe his menace. I believe his hate in that scene. I believe a sort of smoldering resentment in that scene. And I buy him there. 
he really stands out against the rest of the movie because everybody else is just having so much fun that, like, whether they realize it or not when they all arrive there, but within this next month or however long the movie takes place, like, I know in the beginning they said that they're going to be there a month. I don't know. I don't really get a sense of how long it takes place. Maybe over a weekend? Like, it's not very long. There's going to be two weddings. You know, there's going to (laughs) be so much fun to be had. It just seems like nobody has responsibilities. Like, they just came back from a battle or something. They're all just hanging out. It's like a bunch of good-looking dudes came back to this castle or to this place where there's a bunch of really good-looking women, and they're all just going to hang out and just see what happens. And Keanu's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here, blah, blah, blah. He's so against it. Like, I, I kind of wish we got a little bit more of him, mm-hmm. but I also wonder if he's as effective as he is because he's not in that much. That, you know, if you had mm-hmm. that kind of antagonist, that foil in a few more scenes, if you'd sort of outstay his welcome. It's funny, Joey, because like we've mentioned, I can't keep track on which podcast, but I think most recently we were doing a movie and one of the characters was going from scene to scene and meeting new characters in every scene. And those characters had to be typecast pretty strongly, you know, you had to be able to recognize that character immediately because they weren't really going to be in the movie for too long and really had to get a lot across and be able to read him well. And I think Keanu is that character in this movie, you know, like he's not in it a lot, yet he's in the pop culture consciousness at the time. He's sort of playing against what you would think of as his type. Mm -hmm. So there's like this interest in him and he's good. So he's playing the role of kind of like this anchor in a way where yes he's not on screen but he's very pivotal mm-hmm. and you need someone strong to play that role and you know and not a lot of people can pull the villain off in the first place yet a villain who's this influential and isn't even on screen that long the time he spends on screen is extremely memorable as far as I'm concerned and and maybe the only other actor in this movie cast in that type of role is like what Michael Keaton is mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. right like he's probably oh got the God. second smallest role yeah and you definitely need a Michael Keaton for that so it's kind of interesting what Brenna did in his casting here I thought it was pretty strategic. I don't know how we've talked this long and not talked about Michael Keaton, (laughs) who is not in this movie very much, but he just showed up. When he showed up, I said, oh, hi, dirty Michael Keaton. Like, he's just, like, filthy and greasy and sweaty. And if you had told me that this guy was going to lose his mind and start walking around Times Square in his underwear, (laughs) like, if he was going to become Birdman, like, I would believe you. He's not the lead of this movie like he was in Birdman, but he's just that same kind of heightened, like, I don't even, I can't describe what he's doing because it's insane. He's always reminded me of a snail that's climbed out of his shell or something, like he's missing some part of himself and he's just sort of covered in slime and goo. And it's a testament to the fact that Michael Keaton can and will do just about anything, you know, to put yourself out in this way. Kenneth Branagh has talked about how the Dogberry character is one of Shakespeare's least funny clowns. And, you know, in a a play where so many other characters are so funny, what they decided to do to try and make the character, he and Michael Keaton together, decided that he would be as physically repulsive as he is sort of linguistically repulsive and linguistically sort of misunderstanding things. And, And boy... I sort of always want to take a shower after after one of his scenes. <laughs> you just you just literally feel kind of kind of gross. It's so great because you know Michael Keaton can go there because we've seen Beetlejuice and we've seen Batman, so you know he's got those sides to him and he's great whenever he does that and this is just like you said like he gets into the physical side of it. I feel like that is 
what I'm more impressed by. I've never really seen him contort himself in such a manner as when he's doing the uh, Monty Python yeah. riding a horse that isn't there, mm-hmm. or he's like inquisiting closer and closer and closer to people because no one understands what he's saying and he's got the terrible teeth and stuff. Like he is fully devoted here, 100%. And one other thing I picked up on, I don't know if this is connected, but I picked up on um, I saw a few minutes of the movie Multiplicity that he did, where he clones himself a few times, and by the time he gets to, like, the third clone, it's kind of mentally unstable in a way and it's very much like the dogberry character where he just can't really speak straight and is hunched over and doing like a lot of this performance here so i don't know if he just decided to reach back into that bag later in his career or anything but he's he's great in this like i'm sure he's doing what shakespeare wrote but if you also told me like he completely improvised everything he was doing like i would believe it he's just so into this character that if he wasn't so recognizable he would just sort of disappear it's amazing. And the physicality of the character, the, all the, where he's like grabbing his partner and slapping him around and poking him in the eyes and stuff, none of that is in the script. That physicality all came out of their rehearsals and then the shooting of the movie and just Keaton's take on this character. And you just cannot forget. I mean, there's no way to forget that once you've seen it. I want to go back just one second to something, Joey, you talked about that I think should just be highlighted in terms of the Keanu character. And I think it's underplayed in this movie. I think because they want this to be more of a romp, to be more joyful. But one of the reasons that the events of the play take place and are as sort of happy as they are is that these men are returning from war. They're returning from combat. And when it's announced to Emma Thompson and her uh, crew there that, that they've come back, they ask, like, is, and is everybody with him? Like, did they all live? You know, did they survive? And you have the Robert Chad Leonard character say, before when I left, my thoughts were all about war, right? And now I've come back and now I'm in love with Hero. Kate Beckinsale, we should also mention, another star to be in this uh, in this movie. And so there's a, a way in which that colors all of the all of the things that happen in the movie. That these are men returning from you know from combat. And I think that you could do. And I've seen a reading readings of the play where the Keanu character, where the Don John character is, if it, maybe it's not PTSD, but is has been sort of can't shake off the war. And all his comrades have come back, and they're like oh, we're just having fun and finding ladies and getting married. And he is still in the mindset of, you know, cannot cannot shake the war off. And I think that that makes it more his story in a way. It doesn't really fit this version of the movie. You know, people who have a problem with the Don John character, it's a way to sort of explain him uh, maybe a little more, to color him a little more completely. I like that reading. It doesn't sort of explain why he wants to destroy the weddings and everyone else and stuff, but <laughs> yeah. it, it's 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 an interesting level, the idea, because they don't dwell on the fact that they're coming back from war right. and they're going to go off to another battle and anything like that. And so it's nice to have at least one character who remembers what's actually reality, you right. know, like the reality of the world that they're living in. And I could see him being frustrated with everybody, especially his brother, the prince, taking everything so lightly and reveling so much. One or two days is fine, but you're going to be a month here. It's like, <laughs> I think that is really what pisses him off a little more, you know, pushes him over the edge a little bit there. I, I just found him to be almost like for this take, I guess he's just kind of like this trickster, almost like a Loki or some kind of yeah. like mm-hmm. character like that, right? He, like, he just wants to stir the pot. Like everybody's having their version of fun, so he wants to have his version of fun, and his version of fun is being villainous and deceitful, and you know, yeah, true, that's hurting a good point. people. That's a really good yeah. point. And I think one of the things that the movie does a disservice to his performance. And see, I'm going to knock the movie a little bit. 
by and large, I love the music in this movie. Again, I'm not really objective because I listen to it a lot. I still have my original CD soundtrack. But his massage scene, that Mickey Mousing of the music where like the, you know, these like the musical sting will come in or, you know, when he like turns and looks and ring, you know, it sort of, I think, undercuts his menace a little bit and undercuts his performance and makes me think, am I supposed to laugh at this? Because I don't think I'm supposed to laugh at this, but there's kind of a, there's a playfulness to the music that I think does a disservice to his performance there. There's something about the directing in this that reminds me a little of like later Tarantino, like in Glorious Bastards to a degree, where you, where you have this subject matter in these movies that aren't necessarily comedies, but they're played comedically. You know, like you have this horrible, terrible character like Hans Landa, and you're like, I, I want to hate this character, but I'm having so much fun watching this performance and stuff. And I feel like we get some of that in this with Keanu where it's like yes he's he's a dastardly character and he's bad but Bren is kind of saying like enjoy the uh-huh. bad character uh-huh. it's a play like it's a movie like he's got this that extra level of talking to the audience at least in my interpretation I feel he's saying stuff like he's like no it's okay to laugh at Keanu I understand he everybody's over the top uh-huh. so it's uh-huh. like by the end of this when they dragon they're like we've caught john we've got him and he comes in and doesn't even say a word like i laughed my ass off that whole time when they were just <laughs> walking him toward denzel and he, and he doesn't even defend himself or anything i was just laughing so hard so so i think there's that level it's okay to, to laugh at some of the performance here it's very over the top well i feel like a lot of that goes into the fact that not only can you adapt Shakespeare in any way that you want, but also he wrote it so that everybody in the audience could find an enjoyment and amusement in different things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I feel like in anything that you're watching, like you're allowed to, I mean, this is true about any movie, but specifically about like Shakespeare, is that like you're allowed to laugh at whatever because he's writing it for the drunk poor people right. in the front. He's writing it for the, the, you know, the high class, the people in the balcony. There's things in this movie or in all of his comedies that he wrote for to, to sort of to entertain everybody. And so when there's things like you're not sure if you're supposed to laugh or not, I think that's maybe that's Kenneth Branagh saying, I think this is funny, mm-hmm. but like maybe I'm not like maybe it's like him saying like I'm not sure if I'm supposed to find this funny, but I do find it funny. So like I'm gonna sort of like subtly put it in and if you want to laugh, we get it. Like you and I, we get it. So I feel like in this movie especially, laugh at whatever you want to laugh at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good point. And and it has to be said this is a great entry level Shakespeare, especially for adolescents and anybody older, but entry level Shakespeare, where for my money anyway, and this is of course coming out of my experience, having seen it at the, you know fourteen or however old I was, you know you understand what's going on, even if you don't get every line of dialogue and understand all the ins and outs of what they're saying because the language can feel kind of archaic at times. I've always felt this is one of the most accessible adaptations where they're almost, when Kenneth Branagh's talking, or any of them, but when uh, Kenneth Branagh in particular, when he's talking, he's almost like just expressing feelings and thoughts, not words. Do you know what I mean? Like he allows the sort of subtext to play through the words in a way that is that's just remarkable, I think, that makes it very easy to understand, especially for young people can unlock not being afraid of Shakespeare, right? Like it's is this is stuff that's meant to be heard. It's meant to be spoken. And when it's spoken well, the meaning comes through. And this is a director who for whatever faults he has about being uh, overly reliant on steady cams or whatever, like there there are things you could fault for sure. Kenneth Brown 
Sopranos direction in in this movie and, and others. But the clarity of vision and understanding of characters and the ability to sort of bring Shakespeare across, as you say, Joey, in its original intent, meaning for anybody, I think that that's, he does that better than anybody. Well, I feel like that's the big problem that a lot of kids, like especially and, and including me, when people say they don't like Shakespeare, because it's like because reading it is tough, but yeah. watching it performed, or you know, even people if you like read it out loud in class or whatever, it's like a completely different thing because right. the way that they speak with the, the iambic pentameter, and I feel like they're sort of I don't know how close this is to I feel like this is not word for word what Shakespeare wrote, but I feel like it's pretty close, it's pretty close, and just yeah. and hearing it spoken even if it's not done well like it is done well here but like even if it wasn't it's like a completely different Mm -hmm. meaning and then to have someone who knows they're doing and also cast himself in the role with probably the biggest monologue in the entire movie Mm -hmm. like that one where he's talking about how he's in love with Beatrice Mm -hmm. and it's just basically him talking to nobody for like three minutes about Mm -hmm. like well maybe I do love her maybe I don't like what do I I don't know like I don't know how I feel but like she is really kind of attractive but like I don't know like I kind of hate her and he's just like (laughs) he's it's like stream of consciousness and you're just like oh you're sort of like wondering who he's talking to it's like oh he's just talking to me or he's just talking to himself like he doesn't like care he's just trying to make sense of what's going on and there are deeper things going on but like at the same time not really like he's just sort of laying it all out there be like you know like i like this girl but i kind of hate this girl and i'm not sure what to do definitely you know i i I feel like at its core even though there's complexity to it this is a very basic story Mm -hmm. because there's very much nothing going on like the title is quite apt like there isn't much to do about nothing here because in the end like nothing really ended up happening right like two people fell in love and that's kind of it and nothing bad really ended up happening but I also feel like you could get an incomprehensible version of this as well you know and I think that's where Brenna steps in with his strengths and and something else that's crazy is if you look at another one of his Shakespeare movies Hamlet like that is very tough to sit through you know that is extremely strict and by the book like word for word so he's capable of doing Shakespeare at all these different levels and I I almost feel like this is I don't know if Shakespeare conceived it as a way to sort of get used to his style or his stuff or stuff but I definitely feel like Kenneth Brenna is presenting it in a way through the style of cinema that people are familiar with and drawing them into Shakespeare and maybe getting them through it in a times they otherwise aren't because this is basically just a romantic comedy right, you know right. <laughs> you could just redo this in modern times with Renee Zellweger 10 years ago if you needed to yeah so it's definitely accessible and it's good too so like that helps a lot like he's a really good writer and all the situation comedy stuff is here parts of it literally feel like a sitcom so it's really cool just to see back then how conscious he was of storytelling and storytelling style while we're on this topic just very briefly circle back again to denzel washington and how effortless he is with this there's a grace to his performance and a casualness but a, yeah a full understanding of what he's doing in the movie and what he's saying in the movie and there's a sadness to it i remember the, the very very first time i watched it when i was a kid one of the moments that stuck out to me was at the very end when he's sort of left there all alone they have a scene early on where he proposes to beatrice 
he, you know, he says, would you consider me? And she says, no. And it's not played, you know, heavy and it doesn't, it's not dwelled on and nobody has a, you know, blows off about it or anything. But then at the end of the movie, when he's left sort of all by himself and everybody else is dancing off to the Hey Nani Nani's, you know, I really, I kind of ached for him in that moment. And it, not because he'd been pursuing anything other than sort of his friend's happiness or honor or whatever, but something about, I think it really is something about, about his performance. He is so, so well cast in this movie. And it's kind of a crime he hasn't gotten to do more more Shakespeare on film. He, at one point, he did Julius Caesar on Broadway, and I I will I, I never saw it, and I kick myself to this day for not getting to that. I couldn't afford it at the time. I was a very poor grad student. I wish he would do more Shakespeare that I could see. Well, what's weird about Shakespeare adaptations is that it feels like there could be way more than there are. I feel like there aren't many anymore, and I guess there's some that, like, a lot, I mean, a lot of writing is based on his stories, but, like, I feel like there just aren't many adaptations of his work anymore, and I don't know if that's just because kids these days, and, like, all their screens, and, like, don't want to read, I just, I just don't know, like, I feel like there's a reason that people like him aren't in more adaptations, it's just because, like, people aren't making them really anymore. Well, they're hard to get financed. Yeah. You know, like, this is not an easy, these are not easy to get made. And ones that have been adapted that were done a long time ago at the you know from the dawn of filmmaking they've been adapting Shakespeare but you get to the point of Laurence Olivier and like Orson Welles like those guys knew how to do it right and so I almost feel like for a long time people were just watching those versions going like there's no reason to remake any of this kind of stuff they did it so well and then you had guys like Kurosawa I mentioned earlier who Mm -hmm. would adapt Shakespeare to feudal Japan and I feel like we don't know about a lot of great filmmakers from other countries and regions that have been doing the same thing over the years that just haven't gotten the recognition perhaps but it is quite a shame especially having not seen like a Shakespeare adaptation recently because like you said Joey they're not coming out or whatever I want more of this stuff you know like I forgot how much I was into this stuff and it's too bad and and Denzel I mean the guy feels like this is what he should only do you know like I feel like this is what he's born to play it's incredible like have why isn't he done othello why isn't he yeah why hasn't he just been in other romeo and juliet have him be one of the fathers in that like it doesn't matter just just put him in some more shakespeare just to defend contemporary adaptations of shakespeare for film Macbeth last year with michael fassbender and marianne cotillard got some buzz i saw it it was not my favorite version of Macbeth, but it was gorgeous and a different take in a lot of ways julie tamor has done the tempest and titus in the last, I guess, 15 years now, and did sort of a remarkable thing, casting Helen Mirren as Prospero in The Tempest. Again, not a great adaptation, but got made. The guy who did that Ethan Hawke Hamlet did an Ethan Hawke Cymbeline, I think it was, two years ago. So they are being made. They're just, they're not easy to find, and certainly not in the numbers that they were. My guess is that it's it kind of will come and go in waves. You know, in the 90s, you had Henry V being sort of a vanguard of those films. It was very popular. It was nominated for Best you know, Screenplay, Best Director, best maybe Best Picture. I can't remember. But it was big awards season movie. So then you got this movie and you got the Romeo plus Juliet. And like there was a big boom in, in Shakespeare adaptations in the 90s. And then it sort of has died down a little bit. Like it's more to a trickle in the in the aughts and and. 20 teens so maybe we're maybe we're due for it again maybe he'll get to play i'd love to see him play king lear someday he's not quite that old yet but he could do macbeth you could have him do macbeth as you say like i, I would it sort of feels like he could like if he if he only ever did shakespeare adaptations i think that would be pretty great 
Real quick in terms of budgets, I looked up how much the two Much Ado's cost. This one cost $11 million and it grossed $22.5. There's no number on what the Joss Whedon version cost, but apparently most of it, or, or close to all of it, was financed by his wife. And there's a quote that I read that he said, that Joss Whedon said, whatever you think the budget is, it's less. Like, they basically did that for yeah. no money. So I feel like if you want to make a Shakespeare movie today yeah. in the climate, I mean, this came out four years ago, but, like, you basically either have to put up the money yourself or just do it for no money right. because the market is not there for Shakespeare right now, I guess. Or, or at least the market might be there, but, like, Hollywood doesn't think it's there, right. I guess, is the more important right. thing financially. I think that's the big issue, right, is that the executives aren't thinking in terms that they should be. Like, right now, they're like, oh, superhero films, that's the genre, right? Genre filmmaking, like, let's get all of these samey things going on. What I don't think the executives understand is that you could kind of sell Shakespeare as a genre in Hollywood, you know, like, put out a whole bunch of Shakespeare films, make it a genre, you get really good actors doing really good acting in Shakespeare, you know, they want to bring it, right? Like, that's what it's all about. And then you find really good young actors cutting their teeth doing Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. So you could almost treat it as like this kind of training ground, and at the same time, flood the market with the Shakespeare genre. I think that, yeah, it's kind of a missed opportunity right now, you know. More people want it than they realize. I mean, look at something something like Shakespeare in Love, which is so frustrating <laughs> that that movie gets so much attention. And it's, you know, it's not even a Shakespeare play. It's about people putting on a Shakespeare play in Elizabethan times. And it's just, it's not what I feel deserves the accolade, right? Like the accolade should go to the actual Shakespeare. Like, as we sort of bring this podcast down to a close, like, it's kind of interesting to talk about the story, because, like, on the one hand, there's, like, not much story, and on the other hand, how would you describe this? Just a bunch of people get together, and then people lie their way into two weddings, sort of? The whole thing is, like, they're just putting words in other people's mouths and letting that lead to something more. Yeah, there's a, a sense in which this is a great example of the maxim that you want your screen stories to be simple but complex, that the story itself is very simple and that the complexity comes in the emotional entanglements that that simple story produces. And there are places in this story, in, the, in this version of the story, that could tip toward tragedy. You know, if it, when, the, when the comedies are done best, there's a point in the middle where it's like, okay, there's a way this movie could go where it could just be a bloodbath by the end of it. I remember the first time I, I saw a film adaptation of Hamlet, I think it was, must have been the Mel Gibson one, and, I, and it was sort of stupid because I was old by this point and, I, and the movie wasn't stupid. The movie was, was quite good. But I remember thinking to myself at the end as they're like hauling his body away and everybody's dead around him. Like I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, this is why they call it a tragedy because everybody dies. And there's a point in this movie, you know, when they go through the first time they attempt the wedding and Claudio character rejects Hero and the prince stands up with him and says, yes, the believing that they have seen her having sex in her in her window the night before her marriage and there's a you know the her after they leave her father like grabs her by the hair and is like you know i'm gonna kill you it becomes very dark in that place kenneth Branagh is gonna duel robert sean leonard and it gets talked into it by beatrice who's like if you really love me if you mean this then you will go kill him for as light and as fun as the movie is, it's able to balance that against some, some pretty dark stuff in the middle that then comes out all right at the end, like it sort of circles back on itself. But you shouldn't underestimate how hard it is to keep those shifting tones. And then that cutting back then, in the middle of all that, back to Dogberry, back to the Michael Keaton character. I mean, 
I, the fact that they're able to maintain those tones as well as they do is is a real testament to the both the direction and the cast. I think. Yeah, a lot of what keeps it comedic to me, because I totally agree, if you play this one degree wrong, like, you're right, it could just end up with, like, a huge duel at the end or something. I was almost half expecting a duel, to be quite honest. (laughs) For me, where a lot of the comedy comes from and maintains the levity during some of those scenes is the whole idea of who knows what when. That it's all kind of this big, giant misunderstanding keeps me laughing because I know it's going to get worked out at the Uh end and like in that wedding scene it gets intense but you look over Denzel's shoulder and see Keanu kind of smirking and you know Kenneth Brenner really doesn't want to murder his friend or anything Claudio so he's trying his hardest to be like a tough guy and you kind of see through that at least I did you know so like nobody wants to be mean to anybody else so that is also funny to me too is like one minute they're just about to have like a giant orgy and the next minute it's turned into this big slap fight. But you're right. I think you need to go dark because of how bright they mm-hmm, go. Mm-hmm. You know right, what I'm saying? Right. Like, And it helps with the balance of the tone as well. Watching it, I was like, wow, this must have been extremely difficult to make. <laughs> it looks easy. Right. He makes it look very right. easy. I don't think I have anything else to say about this movie. Tobin, do you have anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> no. As you say, I come to the end of my notes, and I'm just writing at the end. It's just so goddamn fun. I just... So, <laughs> I, I, like I say, I am a full partisan for this movie, and if you have not seen it and have any interest at all in Denzel Washington or Shakespeare or Kenneth Branagh or any of these actors or young Kate Beckinsale, you should go watch this movie right now. It makes me so happy. What's sort of a little bit weird, and I don't want this to come across as sexist, but there's no other way to sort of do it, but, like, Kate Beckinsale is almost more attractive now, or not almost more, like, way more attractive now than she was then. Like, then she's just, she's like this 20-year-old, and I was expecting this, like, young, because she's beautiful, and I was expecting this young bombshell, but, like, Emma Thompson is just sort of, like, gorgeous lead of this, the female lead of this movie. Kate Beckinsale is just sort of, like, this, like, chubby-cheeked little girl, sort of. It's weird how, like, 20 years old in 1993 is much different than 20 years old today, I feel. It's true, and on that note, the suntans that this cast got to be in this movie are amazing. Like, Emma Thompson is, you know, bronzed, is naturally bronzed in a way that is just sort of, like, she's kind of breathtaking from that very beginning when she's when she's in that, you know, that white dress with the grapes and you know they're very deliberately playing you know with with all kinds of image sexual imagery you know throughout this movie in a way that is also very appropriate for shakespeare and you're right she's totally gorgeous we should also make a a point or i i'm just going to make the point that one of the things that kenneth branagh has done as a great service to film is to introduce actors you know to sort of quote-unquote discover actors when you think about him you know whether it's Robert John Leonard or Kate Beckinsale who who had been in things before this but sort of really emerged after this in a way or when you think about Loki right you think about Tom Hiddleston that that's a person he cast in that role he'd known him from the Wallander tv series that they're in together and he has such a way with actors everybody wants to work with him right and I think that he has a way of seeing people before they're you know, like sort of helping launch launch their careers in a way. And you're right. One of those people is Kate Beckinsale, who looks, if not better, at, well, she looks, yeah, she's, she's a re- remarkably attractive woman today, <laughs> as you say, in the least sexist way you can say that possible. And just, she's just so young. She's, she's a baby in this movie, you know? And I think she's meant to be. She's meant to be sort of purity in this movie, right? Yeah. And the Emma Thompson character, in the way he writes about this story, she and Benedict are supposed to have, have already had an affair prior to this 
Yes. This mm-hmm. movie, right? So there's a there's a worldliness to her that plays nicely against the purity of Kate Beckinsale. It seems like Beatrice, the Emma Thompson character, has sort of seen it all. She's over it all. She's just sort of like, I'm good. Whatever happens, happens. But like, I'm good just in general. And Kate Beckinsale, like, I feel like there's never a scene in this movie where Kate Beckinsale is not smiling. Like, yeah. She just seems pure joy throughout the entire film. I can't believe that when the plot of Denzel coming up to her and being like, you know, I'm in love with you. And then like, oh, like, I'm, you know, I think I should pass you up to my right. Like, she doesn't care who she's with. She's just like, all these wonderful men want me. I can't believe it. Like, I'm just so happy. She's just so happy. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's it's her as the actress, but also the character just like, I can't believe like this is this is great. Yeah, and she's not given much to do here. To to be fair, to no, like, like <laughs> Emma Thompson, as you say, she she's a, whether you're talking about Keanu movies or Shakespeare or just women in general, female roles in general. This Beatrice character is a strong, tough, tough character, and has all kinds of agency and power, and and is able to sort of be that within a romantic comedy context, which is kind of impressive. But Hero gets gets nothing like that. Like, what are her lines? She just sort of has her wedding vows, and is that it? I honestly am having a hard time remembering any other dialogue that she has in this movie. I think she spreads some gossip with one of the she older does. women. She mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's about it. I almost thought that her name was ironic, like Hero, <laughs> and she is anything but the hero of the movie. But I also love that name for a girl. I think Hero is awesome for a name. I just thought that there's kind of a interesting connection between Kate Beckinsale and Keanu and that is that in the last movie Keanu was fighting vampires and Kate Beckinsale will go oh, on look to at that. a vampire and one of her most well, is famous she, Is she a franchise. vampire or is she a lichen? There's a difference. Uh, she's the vampire and then... Oh, like, the lichens the, are werewolves. The, yeah, the lichens she teams up with one I think and yeah, I only saw the first one, but there was the vampire connection. I, I know, that was kind of cool. I know all about the Underworld movies from Len Wiseman, the Paul F. Tompkins character. I've never seen an Underworld movie, but I've seen Len Wiseman, who loves sex parties and makes the Underworld movies, married to Kate Beckinsale. The other thing I want to point out about this movie is that we talked about earlier, like at the very beginning, about how Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson were married. Apparently, the 1967 made-for-TV film, Robert Stevens and Maggie Smith were in the lead roles, and they were both married, and then they later divorced. So here's a pro tip for you. If you're going to get cast in a movie adaptation of Much Ado with your wife, don't do it if you want your marriage to last, because they're over two in sustaining marriages. It's also funny, I think, well, maybe not as funny, but Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton did a version of Taming of the Uh Shrew, and they are kind of known to have had a volatile relationship as well. So I don't know if you should do Shakespeare with your spouse might be the lesson. (laughs) The other little bit of trivia, as you mentioned, the old woman that Hero talks with, uh, sort of spreading gossip with, that's Emma Thompson's mom. Oh. That so so at the time, of course, is mother-in-law to the director. <laughs> at the time, the the movie was made. Yeah, I guess the only other thing I'd have to say is I kind of wish there was room for more Keanu in this. You know, just have him standing there in the background with his evil smile and smirking, and you know, rubbing his hands together anywhere. Just just stick him in here a little more if you could. But uh, that's pretty much my only complaint with this movie it might not be the best Keanu film in terms of screen time but it's one of my favorite Keanu films that we've watched so far I'd say that I especially that I haven't seen before 
Yeah, I liked it. I mean, this is, I mean, not that it was really any doubt, but the movies that Tobin's been picking that he's been guesting on are the ones that really sort of lend themselves to the most rewatching. That a lot of these movies, as you know, I'm not necessarily particularly enamored with. And even though I didn't love this movie as much as the Joss Whedon version, this is definitely a movie that I'm going to revisit more so than most of the other things that we've done so far in Keanu Club. That streak is going to come to an end because I think my next one might be Chain Reaction. I'm not sure. Uh... Your next one is Chain Reaction, which is a thing about scientists with Rachel Weiss and Morgan Freeman or something? We'll get there when we get there, but Rachel Weiss is the draw for me in that in that movie. I guess if anything, and you guys know how I watch films and stuff, like I think this might send me off into a little bit of a Shakespeare Ooh, tangent now. Yay. And I'm gonna try and go watch like the Joss Whedon version and more of the more recent ones that Fossbender, Macbeth and yeah, all the other things that I've missed over the past like 10, 15 years. There's a great a series the BBC has done the last couple of years. I think it's called The Hollow Crown, where two years ago they did one where it was, um, I think it's Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two, Henry the Fifth, and Richard the Second. And we're talking Jeremy Irons and Tom Hiddleston and all kinds of amazing actors. Uh, they made it for you know for BBC for the TV. And then there there's a, a second se- a season, a second series that takes another cycle of the history plays with Benedict Cumberbatch and just all, just all these great actors. And those are really those are really worth seeing. They're again they're very traditional. They're all played of the period. But you're getting to see all these fantastic actors do these, you know, these great parts. It's it's not a bad way to spend a few afternoons, or in your case, like a day, given how how much you watch. I might have missed it, but did you did you say like is Kenneth Branagh involved with that at all, or no? Not with that. No, hasn't been involved with that. It seems like that's sort of like maybe I don't know if that's actually in his wheelhouse or just like what I imagine to be in his wheelhouse. Because he's also like the guy who makes this movie and stars in this movie. The fact that he goes on to direct Thor, I don't know. It just feels like a complete departure. No, he it's true. He has a he has a, an eclectic career as a director. But you know, his first few outings, he does some Shakespeare, then he does some reincarnation noir. He did a comedy, this comedy called Peter's Friends about AIDS. Hugh Laurie's in it. Uh, Emma Thompson, obviously, and all, all these great. Comedians. Median, Stephen Fry's in it, and not about AIDS, but there's a character who has AIDS in it, and it was a, a sort of topical thing. So he has his film careers is pretty is pretty varied that way. And for my money, some of the best parts of Thor were the comedy bits when he's like the fish out of water stuff. There's a there's an understanding of comedy that he has that doesn't get then used in as much as maybe it should. I like to imagine in some alternate reality that he's the architect of the show House because he's casting Robert Sean <laughs> Leonard, he's casting yes. Hugh Laurie in these movies, yes, yes. and some like super fanboy is like, oh my god, these guys are all perfect, like a medical drama that I'm going to make in eight years from now. Because I mean, I don't know Robert Sean Leonard from anything but House, and I mean, obviously I've seen Hugh Laurie in other things, most notably, most recently, in The Night Manager with the other guy yes. with Tom Hiddleston that we were just talking about. That sort of everything kind of comes full circle. Like, Robert Sean Leonard is weird in that, like, he doesn't age. Like, he still uh-huh. looks the same when the house went off the air as he does in 1993, which I guess is great for him. But I just like that he's, like, this architect of this medical drama that he has no idea is going to go on air for another, like, 11 or 12 years or whatever. Robert Sean Leonard was in this movie called Swing Kids, also in 1993, that also starred Christian Bale and Noah Wiley and Barbara Hershey, about young men in Germany in Nazi era um, who are in love with 
swing music. Swing music is underground music. They have to sort of sneak around to do it because it's illegal. It's not a musical, but there's a lot of music in it. And Kenneth Branagh plays a Gestapo agent in it, but is uncredited because at the time he was kind of famous and didn't want his name to sort of draw. So he shows up in this movie and he's nowhere in the credits. And I don't know if it's, that's where he met Robert Sean Leonard or if they had already worked together and made the... Uh, he did it as a favor to Robert Sean Leonard after they made Much Ado or not. But you're totally right. He doesn't age at all from movie to movie or show to show over the years. So it looks like Swing Kids came out the same year as Much yeah. Ado. They both yeah. came out in 93. This came out just before. So I'm not sure. Maybe that's just like a coincidence. But what is sort of interesting, I, I forgot, looking at Robert Sean Leonard's IMDb, he's obviously in Dead Poets Society. I think he, is he the one who dies? I'm not sure. Yeah, he performed Shakespeare in it. He's in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Recently, he's in Falling Skies with Noah Wiley uh-huh. as the star. Uh-huh. So right. everything comes together in Robert Sean Leonard's filmography. <laughs> it's all... Time is a flat circle for him. <laughs> can I tell one last story? I know I'm taking up all this time, but I, I can I tell my Kenneth Branagh story? So Kenneth Branagh, I'm just going to tell. I'm not going to let you tell me if I can or not. I've been obsessed with Kenneth Branagh, as you, as I've mentioned, for decades. There was a Kenneth Branagh compendium was the name of a site, a website. The first website I ever checked religiously was all this Oh, God, news. the nerdiest site in history. I know. And I'm sure it was run by a bunch of middle-aged women in, in, in England. And I, I, you know, But here I am, just check, this fanboy, just checking it all the time, uh, all through college. For my birthday two years ago, he was doing Macbeth in New York. And he was doing it in the in this theater where you would walk into this is the armory in, in New York. And you'd walk in across this like muddy swamp and you had a bracelet that gave the name of your clan. So you sat with your clan and you sat on this like these bleachers, these four sets of bleachers around this big mud pit. And it would rain in the mud pit and they would do the story in the rain, like sword fighting all around you. Like you were sort of surrounded by it. And I was right on the, my wife got me a ticket. One ticket was all we could afford, but she got me a ticket for my birthday. So I'm I'm sitting there and I'm literally multiple times in the show, four feet away from him as he's like sword fighting and sweating. And it was like, it was a religious experience, you guys, all going back to this movie. So if I, if I have not made myself clear, I love this movie. So what we should say is you're welcome. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I didn't realize when we did Keanu, I mean, you did so many Cage episodes that you sort of seemed... You know, you were invested in for one reason or another, but, like, Keanu seems to be, like, right in your wheelhouse that two of your maybe... 10 or 20 favorite films yeah. of all time like it's just I had no idea like looking at you and you know knowing your pedigree and knowing like the kind of films that you like for two of Keanu Reeves' films to be your favorites of all time and then also to have that intimate history with my own private Idaho like this is a this is a, this is a complicated narrative you're weaving here Toby it's true and I, you know I these are not films that I that I would ever teach like they're not those kind of movies do you know what I mean so like you you guys we met when we were you know we were at school and I I'm teaching classics or at least sort of movies that could pass for classics. And I'm not sure either of these could necessarily, but I love them. You're getting a much more personal view of my, of my <laughs> taste here. Well, you're going to be on a bunch more. and I don't know that we're ever going to get to this level of... But <laughs> no. I mean, you, you've, also, you've, you've surprised us two movies in a row by saying you've never seen Idaho and, you know, you have this whole complicated history and now this is one of your favorite films, yeah. if not your favorite film, yeah. like... I don't know what to expect next. Like next time, I was the fourth lead in Chain right, Reaction. Right, right. I got I, all my major scenes were cut. Like I don't know. You you got to keep up in the game. Like I don't know where to go from here. I was Morgan Freeman, and then they recast me. That's what it is. Yeah. Tobin Addington as Morgan Freeman in Chain yeah. Reaction. Thank you, Tobin, for joining us. This was an absolute delight. This movie, like your other movies that you've done, I want to go back and rewatch. Maybe a year from now. 
sort of a spoiler alert for maybe what we might start doing next year, but we're gonna Mike and I are gonna revisit the Cage movies. I don't know that I necessarily want to revisit all the Keanu movies, but maybe we can do like a, <laughs> a greatest hits Keanu Reeves edition Ooh. and sort of go back and pick one every like yeah. three or four. And this is definitely one that I would want to go back and watch again. Nice. So thank you, Tobin. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. This was lots of fun. For all things Keanu Club, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub. See the podcast we've done. See where we're coming next. Find other shows on our network. All sorts of free listening pleasure at cageclub.me and facebook.com slash cageclub. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. That was Tobin Addington, and we'll see you next time on Keanu Club. Nani nani, sigh no more.